0: Um, And thank you all for coming, Uh, it's nice to be here. I had sort of been hoping that in coming to Ohio at the beginning of February, I might see something like real winter, but um, it doesn't, looks like maybe you've only got the beginning of it here, although you have at least a little more than we have in New Jersey, where it feels like kind of mid-November at the moment. Um, But thank you all for coming. Um, This is, um, there is a written version of this talk that uh, some of you I see have. I'm going to abbreviate considerably um, in the things that I'll say uh, here this afternoon. Um, A couple of quick um, preliminary uh, comments, and then I'll I'll get going. First, um, just about the paper. This really is a work in progress. Um, Alan had invited me to consider this a kind of workshop, and um, I'm I'm doing that maybe in spades. So I'll be very grateful for, uh, for people's comments and criticisms. I'm hoping this will eventually turn into a chapter in a book, but I know it's far away from being that now. Um, second, a preliminary comment about the title or the subject. I, I've called this paper Is Democracy for Everyone? because I wanted to have a kind of snappy title, but that isn't quite what the paper is about, or at least the title's ambiguous enough that it might be misleading. Um, it's, uh, I'm not asking the question whether democratic institutions would be good for everybody, and I'm not quite asking the question whether democratic institutions are, in some sense, requirements of political justice in all societies. Um, These are relevant questions to my topic, but they're not exactly the topic. The focus of this paper is on the question, is there a human right to democracy? Is there a universal human right to democracy? Um, Or more precisely, should the international doctrine of human rights as we have it um, include a right to democracy? And in ways that I think will become clear, um, this last is a distinct question of political morality from the earlier questions that I uh, that I mentioned and um, it'll turn out that we'll need a grasp of the nature of human rights in order to answer it. So let me start with some um, comments by way of background um, uh, to situate this question in, in, a larger, uh, in a larger discourse about the nature and content of human rights. Um, the Universal Declaration, as probably most of you know, and I'm going to quote a few passages from it here, holds that everyone has the right to take part in the government of his country um, directly or through freely chosen representatives. Uh, The will of the people shall be the basis of the authority of government, and this will is to be expressed in periodic and genuine elections conducted by universal and equal suffrage and by secret vote. Um, those, Those passages were written in late 1946 and early 1947, and they were... Uh, at the time, intended to, to be sufficiently broad so that they could be satisfied in one party states uh, of the kind found in uh, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe as well as in uh, the democratic west and as late as the very late 1980s it could be said and this i 'm going to quote here from a uh, an international law scholar it could have it was said that it, it is so far at least axiomatic that international law does not guarantee representatives still less democratic governments. I think before the end of the Cold War, it would have been very hard to find anybody who thought that there was any significant, any real human right to democracy. Whatever human right there was that bore bore on the political structure of regimes was much more more general. But since the end of the Cold War, many commentators, as well as most human rights activists, have come to understand international human rights law um, as including uh, an unambiguous right to democratic uh, governance, and um, I, I don't think it can be described quite as a consensus belief, but um, um, the idea that there's a universal human right to democracy uh, today seems to be a commonplace in large parts of the international community. Um, I think it's worth emphasizing the novelty of this development. Um, most political theorists in the tradition of democratic thought have believed differently. Um, I could mention lots of examples, but think just of Rousseau or John Stuart Mill or even John Rawls, either the earlier Rawls or the later Rawls. All of these people, all four of these people, I'm tempted to say, have thought that um, participant, they thought this for different reasons, but they believe that participant institutions are justifiable only in in societies that satisfy certain kinds of background conditions. Um, And in that respect, they represent what's plainly the dominant view in the history of democratic thought. So this sort of emerging commonplace that democracy is a universal human right um, is novel, looked at in the perspective of democratic theory. But of course, the, idea that the, the fact that an idea is novel is not a reason to reject it. Um, I mean, probably lots of true ideas that would be novel. But um, it might at least motivate a more careful consideration of various reasons for doubt um, than is usually displayed by people who think of themselves as friends of human rights or as friends of democracy. Um, The bulk of this paper comments on three kinds of doubt, um, that there could be a universal human right to democracy. One kind has to do with the relevance of differences in the economic circumstances of a society and particularly the relationship between democracy and development. The second kind has to do with the relevance of cultural differences among societies and particularly... Um, of uh, political cultures in which the predominant ideas endorse some form of government that is non-democratic. And the final source of doubt has to do with the prospects of international action to bring about democratic reform in societies where democratic institutions either don't exist or are contested. So I'm gonna spend most of my time talking about those three doubts, but before I come to them as a kind of last uh, set of introductory remarks, Um, I need to say something about the idea of a human right because we can't intelligibly um, uh, think about whether there can be a human right to democratic institutions without knowing what it would mean to say that there is such a right. Um, So um, what does it mean to say that something is a human right? Um, I think that subject needs a a substantial discussion, certainly more than I can do today. So I'm going to, for the moment, at least content myself. I may not content you. Uh, but content myself by stipulating a view, and I'm happy to talk about it later if people want to raise questions, but um, I need some place to start, so um, this is where. Um, One way to think about um, the nature of a human right is to think about the philosophical history of the idea. Um, I mean, one might try to extrapolate, for example, from the tradition of philosophical thought about natural rights from which many people think as a historical matter wrongly, uh, but many people think the modern conception of a human right is derived. Um, But it seems to me that's the wrong way to proceed, and I I wouldn't do it even if I I had time today to work out an analysis of the idea of a human right. When we ask the question, if there's a human right to democracy, this is the editorial we. I realize some people in the room may not be part of this we. When I ask the question, whether there's a human right to democracy, what I mean to ask is, whether the international doctrine and practice of human rights, as more or less as we have it in the world today, ought to include a human right to democracy or to democratic institutions. The question of interest is uh, a question about the nature of the objects called human rights in modern international political life. Uh, And to answer that question, we need an analysis not of the philosophical history of the idea, but of the contemporary discursive practice. So the, the sort of simple model of human rights I'm about to outline in sort of three quick points is is um, is, is um, advanced, so to speak, as a kind of hypothesis about what we would decide if we looked closely at international, at contemporary discursive practice, and asked ourselves the question: What do assertions about human rights commit the person making the assertion to believing? So the, the stipulation then comes in the form of what I'd call a two-level model of uh, what human rights are. Um, it's, and I, I mean this to be a sort of report of, uh, of existing practice, as I say. Um, the model expresses a kind of division of labor between um, states as the bearers of the primary responsibilities to protect human rights, and the international community as the guarantor of those responsibilities, so, so to speak, as the backup provider. Um, The model itself has three main elements, I'll just sort of list them and then say something only about the third. Um, First of all, human rights are requirements, they are normative requirements whose object is to protect urgent individual interests about certain predictable dangers to which these interests are vulnerable under the general circumstances of life in the modern world. That formula packs a lot into it and as, as I say I'm happy to try to talk more about it later. Um, Second point is that human rights apply in the first instance. These are normative standards that apply in the first instance to the political institutions of states, including their constitutions, laws, major public policies. Um, The primary responsibility for satisfying these standards rests with states, with their citizens, um, and, um, and with their leaders, the primary responsibility. The third point, and this is the one that will be important for us, is that human rights are also matters of international concern. Um, What uh, what international concern means is that the human rights of the individual members of a state can become sources of reasons for action for agents outside the state um, in at least three more or less overlapping kinds of circumstances. Um, There is, first of all, a general international responsibility which resides in the human rights organs of the UN system for the most part. Um, to hold states accountable for carrying out their responsibilities to protect their citizens' human rights. Um, Second, states and non-state agents outside the formal system um, um, who have the means to act effectively have reasons, I'm going to call them pro-tanto reasons for a reason I'll get to, to assist individual states to satisfy human rights in cases where the state itself lacks the capacity to do so. And the sort of third element of this is that states and non-state agents have reasons to act to protect human rights um, in, st- in cases in which a state fails through a lack of will to do so. Now, the reasons have to be pro tanto reasons. Um, 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 as you'd re- realize if you think about the elements of international human rights doctrine, um, for many of these rights, it's um, easy to imagine competing reasons that might trump the assertions of rights in particular kinds of cases. So we can't, in general, think that these reasons that are supplied by human rights are conclusory, that they bind to action regardless of the other reasons that might be in play. They're sources of reasons that, can, that, that, um, that compete with the others that, um, that arise in cases in which human rights are violated and judgments have to be made, so to speak, at the point of application about how to act. So that's a sort of outline of a model that I, I defend at more greater length um, in, another, in another paper, but, um, but I need it here in order to answer the question whether there should, we should think that there's a human right to democratic Institutions. Um, I want to just make one comment about the last uh, element of it, um, the element about um, human rights being matters of international concern. It's natural to think, and particularly for those influenced by Rawls's in book, The Law of Peoples, to think that um, um, military intervention is maybe the paradigm of um, international action to protect human rights. But of course that's, for anybody who pays attention to existing international practice, that's, that's artificially narrow. It's very narrow. Um, I mean, today, human rights violations are taken to be reasons for a whole a host of different kinds of political action. Um, nonviolent um, forms of coercive interference like the use of economic sanctions, the imposition of conditions on participation in international organizations, the offering of other kinds of political and economic incentives, um, um, public criticism, the provision of consensual economic and political assistance to governments. All of these are in addition, of course, to the Forms of uh, monitoring and reporting that go on inside the United Nations uh, system, and the use of what you might think of as a as a sort of soft glove form of shaming when uh, individual governments are found to uh, not to respect their own people's human rights. So, when we think about human rights as matters of international concern, and as as matters of international concern as supplying reasons for action, um, it would be a mistake to think that the action for which human rights violations supply reasons. Um, are um, uh, t- have, take the form of military intervention. That's a limiting case, um, but it's not the typical case. So just to conclude this sort of preliminary comment about the nature of human rights, the, these features that I've listed are meant to characterize human rights as sort of, so to speak, the constitutive elements of a public political doctrine. Um, it's a doctrine that claims to regulate relations among states. Human rights as we have them in the world, I think, aspire to be um, to be publicly available norms that justify international political action. If I, to borrow a phrase from Rawls, one could say they're the components of an emergent um, global public reason. Or at least that's what I claim in trying to conceptualize human rights as 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 um, objects. So let me turn now to a second um, main set of comments. Um, um, these have to do with the question of a human right to democracy. Most people who think that there is such a right uh, believe there is on the basis of one or another form of what I'm going to call for convenience, the generalization thesis. Um, they adopt what they think is the most persuasive account of the moral basis of democratic institutions in what we might call standard or familiar cases. Um, And then they contend that that same account applies to substantially all contemporary societies. Um, And as I'm going to say in a minute, doubts about whether um, there's a human right to democracy are in part doubts about whether these standard grounds for believing that democratic institutions are uh, good things or requirements of political justice generalize from the standard cases to the others. So to explore those, um, these doubts, we need a view about the reasons for democracy. And once again, it would be silly to think one could set forth in a talk like this anything like a kind of systematic account of the reasons for democracy. Um, In the paper, I gesture, and it's no more than a gesture, at two kind of stylized uh, positions, which I call the proceduralist and the instrumental, the latter of which is maybe best um, represented in in the canonical works by John Stuart Mill. Um, telescoping a longer discussion, a longer discussion that's still too short, I'm afraid, um, I want to just sort of quickly say something about these two views and then why I'm bothering to mention them. Um, a proceduralist account, as I think about it, is um, an account that holds that when a decision, when a group needs to reach a decision about the policies affecting all of its members, the only fair way to do so is by means of a procedure that gives each member an equal share of control over the decision. It's an account that bears directly on the structure of the decision-making procedure. Um, and the argument for it is most often the argument that we need, um, we need a procedure that gives everybody an equal share of control in order to satisfy a deeper principle which holds that um, each person is entitled to have his or her interests taken equally seriously in the making of public decisions and the, the procedure is necessary in order to ensure the equal consideration of people's interests. The contrast is with um, instrumentalist theories which account for the desirability of democratic institutions in terms of the results they're likely to produce. And in the interesting proceduralist theories, the results aren't just the specific outcomes of decisions, legislation, uh, the choice of a, of a chief executive and so forth, um, but a broader range of of consequences are taken into account. Um, And again, I think Mill is the best representative. Um, He argued, as uh, people who know his book Representative Government will will know, um, that uh, popular institutions are desirable both because they uh, are likely to protect people's present interests, and also because the activity of participation um, encourages the development of a certain kind of character, uh, an independent, responsible character among citizens. Those arguments which you might, which have been called the protective argument and the developmental argument, those are both arguments about the good consequences that democratic institutions are supposed to produce, at least under favorable conditions. Um, So why, I I haven't really said enough to make either of these accounts sound very interesting, so why mention them at all? um, The reason is this, um, I distinguish them mostly to make the point that both of these kinds of views, the proceduralist one and the instrumentalist one, uh, depend for their plausibility on assumptions about the social background that, um, that that are important to the arguments but usually left unacknowledged. So just to sort of illustrate, and I'll come back to this more more carefully in a minute, uh, on the proceduralist view, um, the uh, assumptions play a role in the inference from the principle, the fundamental principle about equal consideration to the principle about procedural equality. So, I mean, to see that, you could consider a sort of a hypothetical but not an unrealistic case of a modernizing society where there are um, wide variations in economic structure, in educational levels, in political competence, There are competitive political parties but they're dominated by urban elites. Uh, The news media are fairly undeveloped or they don't reach significant elements of the population. There may be an agricultural sector where traditional values persist and local politics is primarily clientelist. Uh, I mean, there are plenty of cases like this that are increasingly well documented by political anthropologists. Um, In these kinds of cases, formally democratic institutions Um, are typically accompanied by very substantial differences in effective political influence, and those inequalities in turn affect the incentives that face political decision makers. And um, in those those kinds of circumstances, it's not surprising that we typically find um, enormous differences in the in the, uh, in, the, in the attention given to interests of different segments of the population. There are cases where formal procedural equality is not accompanied by anything like equal consideration in the way that the argument for instrumentalist theories requires. So there's similar considerations that are important for instrumentalist views, maybe even more obviously. Um, Mill saw it clearly, and in some respects infamously, when he argued that in certain kinds of societies which turned out to be those um, over which um, um, England exercised colonial rule, uh, the social background conditions were not yet ripe to support um, representative institutions. And in those situations, Mill thought um, more authoritarian forms of rule, even forms of despotism, might have a stronger justification. Now, there are all kinds of reasons to be suspicious of Mill's of these part, this part of Mill's view. But it seems to me it's not formally wrong if one takes seriously the instrumentalist structure of his general theory of democracy. Change the background conditions in certain ways and the predictions that are implicit in the instrumentalist argument that institutions of a certain kind will produce certain kinds of results may not turn out to be reliable predictions. Um, And that's the the sort of entering wedge for, for the first and second kinds of doubts that I'll talk about Um, in a minute. Um, Now, there are people, and I'm not going to talk about them now except just to gesture in the direction of one, there are people who might be taken as examples of the uh, generalization thesis. That is, people who accept one or the other of these accounts of democracy but don't believe that background variations make any difference in the plausibility of the conclusions. Um, And a good example would be Amartya Sen, who has written, as probably many of you know in various places, um, about democracy as a universal value. Um, It's an argument that begins with a study that he and a co-author did several years ago, many years ago now, of of the comparative performance of the political regimes in India and uh, China in respect to famine, in which it was found famously that democratic institutions tend to respond more effectively to the threat of famine than authoritarian ones. Um, And on the basis of that, many people, though not, not conspicuously send, but many people are tempted to generalize, um, to a sort of an account of the reasons why democratic institutions could be thought to be more desirable under any kinds of social circumstances. Um, The only thing I'd point out here without spending very much time on it is that the original famine study itself quite explicitly doesn't support that generalization. Because while it finds that democratic regimes were better in responding to, to the threat of famine, it also found that they were worse in responding to the threat of endemic uh, deprivation, And indeed, the study makes it clear, the study argues that in the comparison between India and China, which was central to the study, the authoritarian regime in China was significantly better in uh, relieving endemic poverty than the democratic regime in India. So uh, or people. the literature on a human right to democracy is full of these references to the famine study as a source of evidence for a generalization of a kind of crude instrumentalist view about democracy. Um, the study itself doesn't actually support those generalizations. For, uh, for that, we would need more systematic evidence than we get from sin. So that brings me to the first of the three kinds of doubt that I want to talk about in just very slightly more detail than the things I've said so far. This has to do with the relationship between democracy and, um, and development. Um, so one place one might look for evidence about the, that would sustain the generalization thesis would be in the comparative study of democracy and democratic transitions in developing societies. Um, it's, an, it's an area in which I think considerable advances have been made in social science in the last 20 years, and we might actually think we know something now that we didn't know 30 or 40 years ago. Um, as as um, many of you will know, 30 or 40 years ago, the view that was, um, that was by far the dominant view in the social science study of development was that um, various features that are related to a society's level of development make democratic um, uh, institutions less effective in developing societies than they are in developed societies and make the prospects of a successful democratic transition um, lower than they would be in more developed societies. This was a sort of principal thesis of modernization theory of the 1960s and 1970s. Um, it's not a thesis that would have surprised Mill since he held essentially the same view. Well, recent work in, in the comparative politics of development uh, suggests that things are more complicated. And I want to just sort of mention here three main points that I think emerged from the recent literature. Um, and then speculate about whether about what the relevance of these these uh, empirical observations might be for the normative question of whether we should uh, whether there, we should agree that there's a human right to democracy. So just quickly, and with apologies to anybody who actually knows this literature, because um, because I'll be I'll be um, a, as we say in political theory, treating it fast and loose. So three quick points. The first is that there's now no question that the central descriptive idea of modernization theories is true which is to say that the more developed a society, the more likely that its political institutions will be democratic. The problem is that the relationship doesn't appear to be causal, as earlier theorists of modernization confidently believed. The most, there are a variety of studies, but the most comprehensive um, that I know is the recent study by Adam Jaworski and others, Which was unable to explain, it's a large scale, a a large N uh, study that uh, was unable to explain the emergence of democratic institutions as the consequence of economic development. Instead, the way it looks like democratic institutions, when they emerge, emerge for a variety of more or less adventitious uh, reasons that sort of arise roughly with equal probability at any level of development. Um, what makes the difference is that these institutions, once they've emerged, are, um, tend to be much more stable in the sense of being more resistant to further regime changes in well-off than in worse-off societies. So it's the, the, what, the difference that development makes has to do with the stability of institutions, not with the propensity of democratic reform to take place. Second point concerns the policy performance of different kinds of regimes. It used to be thought that at low levels of development, authoritarian regimes on the whole were likely to perform better on a range of economic variables and um, for growth rates, rates of investment, growth of capital stock, rates of employment, various other measures. Um, And it was thought that democratic regimes would perform less well in poor countries. Um, than than alternative non-democratic forms of regime. Well, now appears that that's not true. Um, Democratic regimes tend to perform better in more well-off societies, but they don't tend to perform any worse in worse-off societies than authoritarian regimes holding constant these various measures of development. On 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 the question of economic measures of performance, there seems to be not much to choose. Um, although that's because neither style of regime performs particularly well in these poor societies. Um, But, you know, that's also to say that neither performs worse than the other. Beyond that, societies with democratic institutions are more likely to respect civil liberties, to tolerate religious diversity, and to allow dissent, and they tend to spend less on military uh, expenditures. Um, And that's true across the board in poor as well as better off societies. Um, so those are, com- those are comparisons, roughly, uh, very briefly, that have to do with policy performance. A third point has to do with the relationship between regime type and uh, population. This is, it, 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 I think, interesting and might be less obvious to some people who don't read the literature. Um, in general, the growth rate of population tends to be lower in democratic regimes than in authoritarian ones. Um, and this is, again, more roughly true across the board. Um, in poor societies, and uh, here very poor societies, um, the difference is very small but still roughly favors democracies but, but behind behind that difference there 's a more significant difference in that the rates of uh, both birth and uh, the rates of birth and life expectancies that are found in poor democracies tend to be more favorable than in non democracies in, in democracies, both birth and death rates are lower and life expectancies are longer. Those differences are important, Um, I mean, not not just for the people whose life expectancies they are, but they're particularly important for um, women who are especially affected by, for obvious reasons, by rates of birth. So what's the significance of all of this for the normative argument? Well, you might think these findings vindicate some form of the generalization thesis. You might think that if economic performance is no worse, Um, if um, democracies are more likely to respect civil liberties and if life expectancies are longer, maybe that just lays to rest the traditional worries about democracy and economically developing societies. Um, It would be nice if one could accept that conclusion, but I think it's too sanguine, and uh, this is for two reasons. Um, First, the findings about the economic and political performance of um, regimes represent generalizations from studies that aggregate from lots of cases. So uh, how, what use do we make of these kinds of findings? Well, uh, uh, what I'm going to suggest is that we don't know enough to know what use we should make. And to make that point, just suppose one were asked to choose on the, supposing one were behind some sort of veil of ignorance and one were asked to choose on the basis of these findings whether it would be better to live in a democratic or an authoritarian regime, knowing only the fact that the society in which one would end up living was poor by global standards. What should one choose? Well, Without knowing the, knowing more about the distribution of these cases along some measure of life prospects and without knowing more about the distribution of life prospects within individual societies, I don't think one would know how to choose. I mean, it could turn out that the worst case outcome of a choice for democracy could be significantly worse than the worst case outcome of a choice for authoritarianism, even even though one might admit that the aggregate level there's nothing to choose, or it might be that there's a higher probability of come finding oneself above some minimum threshold of well-being in an authoritarian than in a democratic regime. And if you took seriously the famine studies' findings about China, one might think that would be plausible. Uh, of course, it could also be the other could be true the other way around as well. The point is that the studies we have aren't sufficiently aren't sufficiently focused on the internal distribution within these cases. Um, to, uh, to let us know whether these possibilities I've mentioned are actual or just hypothetical. Um, but the fact that we can't rule them out means that the findings that I've rehearsed earlier don't settle the question about the plausibility of the generalization thesis, or better yet, about the bearing of these empirical findings on a decision whether, um, whether to advocate democratic institutions even at low levels of development. So there's, this, this is not to argue against. It's just to say that there's a large and an important uncertainty and the uncertainty ought to be chastening uh, to those who, um, who are inclined to be sort of optimistic about what the, the available evidence uh, proves. So I said there were two, two reasons I think that the conclusion is uh, too sanguine. The second is this. Um, democratic institutions tend to be less stable in poor societies, as I've mentioned. Um, and it's possible that what looks like a performance advantage when we look at static comparisons would... Um, uh, dissipate when we look at experience dynamically. Uh, and the way to see that is to think um, about the phenomenon that's called democratic transition. And any of you who've done work in the comparative politics of developing societies have probably read more of this literature than you'd like. Uh, democratic transition is the process by which non democratic institutions um, um, change, change in, the, in what appears to be the direction of more formally democratic. Uh, political institutions with features like contested elections for office and freedom of association—that's enough to let uh, parties compete. Well, what we f- what we find looking at the this phenomenon of them—and there there are something like eighty some cases since the 1970s in which some form of democratic transition has taken place—but only a third of them have led to something recognizable as sort of fully formed democratic political institutions. The more common outcome is usually conceptualized as incomplete transition. And there are all kinds of wonderful uh, wonderful words for incomplete transitions in the comparative politics literature. Sometimes they're called stalled, limited, non-liberal, um, incompletely metamorphic. Um, and what all of what these things have in common is that institutions that have certain facial features of democracy come into being through a transition process, but the transition is not as they say, consolidated in the formation of of reasonably healthy institutions with a a form of political competition that we'd recognize as effective in creating incentives for holders of public office to be attentive to popular interests. So far, it doesn't appear that regimes with some of these institutional trappings of democracy but without other of the features typical of democratic societies are likely to perform any more effectively or equitably than the authoritarianisms that preceded them and in some cases they perform worse. Moreover, we don't know enough to know under what circumstances democratic transitions are likely to consolidate and under what circumstances they're likely to remain as hybrid or incompletely metamorphic uh, forms of regime. This may just be a sort of new regime type that emerges in the, uh, in the sort of post-Cold uh, War world which, which, um, which is different both from democracies as we understand them and from traditional authoritarianisms. Um, the point of this is just to say that we can't really say with confidence Um, whether people will be better off in these kinds of regimes than they were in the old regime um, or whether the transition to these these sort of hybrid forms of regimes is a step toward or a step away from a fully consolidated democracy. So this is to say that we have reason to be uh, cautious and maybe even agnostic about inferring from beliefs about the desirability of democracy in standard cases um, views about the democracy, of de- the desirability of democracy, and even more of political action aimed at bringing about a democratic transition, in cases that we really don't understand very well. Uh, so that those are comments about this first kind of doubt. There's more I could say, but I hope enough just to induce some sort of caution about um, uh, generalizing from what turns out really to be a, a kind of a substantially more robust but still incomplete set of empirical findings about the relationship between democracy and development. I want to say something a little bit briefer about uh, a second kind of doubt which has to do with diversity of political culture. Um, I mean, societies differ not only in their economic characteristics but also in their political cultures. And it's sort of reasonable to wonder, as Mill did, whether societies, whether the the generalization of arguments for democracy would be affected by taking note of the fact that there are societies around whose political cultures um, involve embedded political beliefs that are in- inconsistent with those that democratic societies typically have. One way to think about this kind of question would be uh, sort of in parallel with the first question I talked about. I mean, one might sort of ask whether uh, you know, there are cultural preconditions for democracy, but that's not the kind of question I want to raise now. I want to raise a question that is more uh, philosophical, um, not about whether cultural variations influence the achievability or the likely performance of democratic regimes, but about whether they bear on the, the uh, justifiability or desirability of these kinds of regimes in uh, in societies with um, traditions that are non-democratic. So the question is whether there is some culturally neutral sense in which democratic institutions can be said to be the most reasonable um, or the best means of protecting the interests on which their justification uh, depends. Um, and I, I think a way to frame the question um, and may be useful for those of you who um, have uh, no roles his book The Law of Peoples um, is to, is to um, think about his view that although we might regard what he calls decent hierarchical regimes as unjust, They're sufficiently reasonable to be, as Joshua Cohen puts it, above reproach. They may be unjust, but they're sufficiently above reproach that we ought not to interfere in them. Well, how do we understand the idea of being unjust but above reproach? Well, here's here's a way to answer that question. Let's think about um, what it might mean for um, a people to have a collective right of self-determination. As Cohen puts it, and I think this is a useful place to start, um, a collective... um, there's, there's a collect, The minimum requirements of collective self-determination would be the following. Political decisions result from a process in which everybody's interests are represented. There are rights of public dissent for everybody. Uh, and public officials are required to explain their actions in terms of a widely held and endorsed conception of the common good. This is, a, this is Cohen's attempt to restate an idea of self-determination implicit in Rawls' book, The Law of Peoples. Um, There's a clear sense, I think, in which the members of a society whose institutions satisfy those requirements might be said to govern themselves even though institutions need not be democratic in order to be self-determining in this sort of technical sense. And I think what this shows is that it's possible to imagine a society that's self-determining without being democratic. Um, The right to, in that respect, the right to collective self-determination is weaker or you might say more minimal than than, um, the right to democracy. Um, one, now I should say one condition of um, self-determination is that people be governed according to a conception of the common good that is in fact widely held in their society. Um, and that has an important consequence. The consequence is that there may be societies in which uh, you could not say that the society was self-determining if it had democratic institutions. I mean, the the prevailing political morality might be one whose principles were compatible with some non-democratic form of regime. And that sort of society, if there were some form of interference aimed at bringing about a transition toward democratic institutions, the interference would be an interference with a right of self-determination. It would be a society in which democratic institutions and self-determination were incompatible. So you can't just think that democracy is a sort of subset of self-determination. There are multiple ways a society can be self-determining and given certain kinds of background conditions, democracy might not be one of them. Um, and the possibility that this reflection suggests is that the appropriate um, object of international human rights doctrine to the extent that it tries at all to regulate the political constitution of states might be um, a requirement of collective self-determination rather than the more demanding and specific uh, and exclusionary requirement of democracy. Um, That kind of a requirement might be seen to be more respectful of the interest in cultural identity and less prone to overreaching in its application. That's a suggestion. Um, I think the question is whether we have reasons to endorse it. Um, I'm here just going to sketch a way to think about this without really making the argument. Um, I think a way to think about it is to ask what exactly would be lost if human rights doctrine incorporated a requirement of self-determination but not of democracy. Well, you'd have to ask what, you know, how, would, how would a self-determining regime that wasn't democratic differ from a democracy? And again, I think the Rawlsian contrast of liberal democracy and decent hierarchical societies is sort of useful. Um, so I think there are two important differences between these two kinds of regime. Um, one, um, in most contemporary conceptions, democratic institutions are based on a principle of procedural equality. Um, everybody has um, equal an equal right to participate in public decisions. That's not true, however, in a Rawlsian decent consultation hierarchy, and it's not implicit in the definition of self-determination that I've just given. Um, I mean, in a, in a decent consultation hierarchy, political preferences don't need to be given equal weight. Higher offices can be restricted to members of a dominant religious group, uh, and there may be, and that group may have preferential access to the public arena. Um, I mean, equality is part of contemporary conceptions of democracy, but it's not necessarily part of this generic notion of self-determination. Other difference has to do with the mechanism of decision-making. In a democracy, and I think this is is sort of insufficiently appreciated in these discussions, in a democracy, there's an institutional connection between the expressed political preferences of the people and the outputs of public decision-making. That the influence of people's political preferences has to come about by means of rule-governed procedures, rather than, say, as a result of uh, the discretionary judgment of some higher-order authority. We we seek, we know we don't achieve it, but we seek as much as possible for there to be a kind of mechanical connection between the expression of, it may have several steps in it, but a mechanical connection between the expression of preferences and political outcomes. It's a kind of institutional guarantee um, that people 's uh, preferences will bear on political decisions, but that also doesn 't uh, isn 't found in uh, in a decent consultation hierarchy um, there 's consultation, but there 's not control. Um, the expectation is that political decision makers will take in the the interests and in, Uh, preferences that are expressed by members of the population, typically as they are represented through their group memberships. And then we'll make decisions that are responsive and that can be accounted for in terms of a widely shared conception of justice. But there is no, so to speak, institutional guarantee that the expression of interest will influence outcomes. So those are two shortfalls, so to speak, from the standard of democracy that we find in self-determining but non-democratic consultative institutions. And the question is, what should we make of them? So a quick comment about each, Um, first about the shortfall from political equality. Um, Somebody could argue that we have several reasons to accept an inegalitarian but self-determining regime as decent or beyond reproach, even if we don't think it's just. Um, I mean, for one thing, it's inegalitarian features might, by hypothesis, would um, express um, aspects of a conception of justice that's in fact widely held in the society. Um, Members of the society identify with their institutions. Nobody feels demeaned or insulted because they have fewer opportunities. And by hypothesis, the interests even of minorities are taken into account by by Um, decision-makers. Historically, I think one of the most important reasons for objecting to political inequality has been its role in perpetuating um, invidious discrimination and poverty within populations. But if those don't exist in a consultation hierarchy, that particular reason doesn't apply. Well, what about the other shortfall from a standard of democracy, the lack of an institutional or procedural guarantee about the influence of um, individual interests? I think that question's more difficult. Um, The the value of the institutional guarantee is not in itself something that's culturally relative. Um, We can appreciate its value by thinking about um, uh, counterfactual cases where we might say the leader in a consultative hierarchy did not, in fact, take seriously people's interests, um, and there may, in fact, be here a kind of a residue of the instrumental argument for democratic procedures, even in societies where the cultures don't support them. But I think the weight to be attached to that argument is another question. I mean, under our assumptions, the argument depends on an assignment of significance to these counterfactual possibilities that wouldn't actually be shared by members of the society in question. And we assume that that society has a widely shared conception of justice and well-established procedures of consultation. In that kind of a society, there's likely to be a pretty high level of trust in the established procedures uh, of legislation and administration. And it would be reasonable for a person in that society to expect that the introduction of democratic procedures with their individualistic features and with their reliance on political competition would be corrosive of that trust. So even if one holds to what I described as the objective view, that, um, that uh, democratic procedures um, uh, afford an opportunity to protect interests against predictable threats that sort of doesn't have an analog in, um, in a consultative hierarchy, one still can infer that efforts by outsiders to promote the development of democratic institutions in well-ordered hierarchical societies would be welcomed by their intended beneficiaries. So I, I think what follows from this, and again, there's, it would be nice to give a longer argument, is that um, if human rights doctrine were to have a component that bears on the constitutional structure of states, a better candidate for that component would be a right of collective self-determination than a right to democratic um, institutions. Um, now, it would take a lot more work to describe the content of this right to self-determination specifically enough to make to sort of decide whether it's a plausible, uh, it, it, whether it's a plausible element of a public doctrine, and I can't do that here, uh, what I would just want to say is that self-determination is, is itself a reasonably demanding standard. It, it, does, it is not an invitation for an unlimited range of variation in the internal structures of political regimes. Um, and um, recognizing that, we might, not, we might hesitate to draw the conclusion that some critics of Rawls have drawn that the allowance of this other category of um, uh, regime types that are beyond reproach is just an invitation to some sort of despotic rule, I think, taken seriously. That's an overstatement. So a final set of doubts, which I'm going to deal with much more briefly because they're easier and I think more familiar to people. Um, These are doubts about the prospects of international action to promote democracy. Um, Even if one thought, even if one didn't make much of these earlier doubts that I've mentioned, um, one might still hesitate to think that there's a human right to democracy if one thought that in some broad range of cases there was no feasible kind of action available to international agents that could effectively, effectively and reliably bring about democratic reform within a society. I mean, on, on the model that I sketched, human rights are related to the, human rights are, the, are bases of reasons for action. They aren't just abstract standards. They justify international action to bring about change inside societies. If, as I say, there's a range of cases in which there is no available form of action, Um, um, available to any agent outside of society that would help to bring about democratic reform, one might hesitate to think that there's a human right to democracy. And if there isn't any, one way to put it, this is in terms of remedies. If there's no effective remedy available, what is the point of saying that there's a human right? Well, there are all kinds of reasons that uh, I probably don't need to rehearse to think that, that, um, that the prospects of international action to induce internal political reform are probably not as high as people... Sometimes tend to think um, either the either the costs are too great uh, uh, too great to make them um, eligible for choice by outside agents, uh, or too much is being assumed about the likelihood of internal change being th- that would be brought about by the outside um, the outside activity, or the risks to people inside the society being acted on, so to speak, are um, disproportionate to the gain that might be achieved. Um, as I say, I don't think I need to go through all of these possibilities. Um, In the paper, I argue that these concerns might be overstated in certain kinds of cases, but I think probably not in the cases that most matter. I just sort of want to say two quick things about the worry about prospects of international action. Um, The first is that um, the reason that the concerns uh, uh, about the lack of action, lack of of, uh, opportunities for action, are overstated, the reason uh, the reason that you might think that has to do with the fact that, as I said at the beginning. Um, there, there are a lot. There's a lot more ways to act internationally than um, than the highly visible forms of military intervention or the imposition of economic sanctions. Much of this today travels under the heading of what's called democracy promotion, um, and um, in some of some forms of action that are thought of as democracy promotion, which are non-coercive, um, the chances of having a positive effect are actually greater than you might think if you think about cases like intervening in Iraq. Um, uh, so uh, one doesn't want to overstate the doubt that there are that outside, outside agents can sometimes do things that are constructive for democratic reform inside societies. That's sort of on the one hand. Um, but the point on the other hand is that um, when one thinks about the kinds of cases in which external action to promote or support democracy looks seems likely to be affected one realizes that they are only a subset of the range of cases in which uh, in which one might think about acting. There are typically cases in which a society is already internally divided, and there are ones in which within a society there is already a reasonably developed, so to speak, democratic constituency, a political movement, uh, an ousted government that has supporters. Um, there are local forces with whom outside agents can, uh, so to speak, make alliances in promoting. The development or the restoration of democratic institutions—they're not the kinds of cases that we sometimes think about of societies without any significant democratic past, um, and in which uh, outside agents think that they might uh, have a chance of intervening in order to produce change. So, the so the societies in which it seems plausible that outside action might help to produce democratic reform are a subset, and maybe not a big subset, of the um, of the range of available. Cases And that, of course, is a problem for human rights, if you think of human rights in the way that I described them at the beginning, um, because human rights are supposed to be universal. And they're also supposed to give rise to reasons for action in any case in which the human rights are violated. But if there's a significant run of cases in which there's nothing that any outside agent can do that would significantly increase the chances of a successful democratic transition, um, then in those cases, there seems to be no point in saying that people in that society have a human right to democracy. And if there's no point in saying that, then the human right to democracy wouldn't be universal. And if human rights are supposed to be universal, we should again conclude that there can't be a human right to democracy. So I think, I think one is led by a slightly uh, circuitous route to the same sort of skeptical conclusion that I'm led to in thinking about the early, earlier two kinds of doubt, Um, It's not to say that there's not great value in democratic institutions and societies in which they would work as we expect them to work. And it's not to say that they don't represent a sort of ideal, an ideal goal of political change in the long run. This is a point, and this is gonna be my concluding observation. This is a place where it really does matter that the question whether there's a human right to democracy is a different question from the question whether democracy is a requirement of political justice or is in some sense desirable for everybody. For there to be a human right to democracy, it needs to be plausible that international action to support efforts at democratic reform would have a justification. And what I've essentially argued here is that there's a range of cases in which it wouldn't. And that makes me think that the idea that there's a human right to democracy is, in fact, a form of the kind of overreaching of which democratic, of which uh, human rights doctrine is sometimes accused may actually a better example of that than the more standard cases which typically have more to do with economic rights than with political rights so uh, I'm going to stop on that slightly skeptical conclusion um, I um, just would want to repeat what I said at the beginning which is that I'm really not sure it's true so, um, so I'd, I'd be very grateful for people's um, comments and suggestions so I'm happy to answer questions if people have them. Yeah. It would help me if you could just identify yourself. Sure. Michael, I'm a political, okay. political science department. Um,
1: now, I, I a lot packed into the talk. Did you say that the kinds of reasons that the rights generate are pro tanto reasons? If they're pro tanto reasons, then why is it the case that there has to be, um, that they would have, that, that the last argument We can't, we can't generate the, the ought backing up just the, the right um, isn't effective unless there is a pro tanto, right? So setting aside the philosophical reasons to, to perhaps doubt, you know, ought implies tanto arguments in general. In your case, if they're pro tanto, we could say that there's a reason here, but there are <laughs> there are countervailing reasons, practical reasons that, that hold them on the the, the the rights-generated reason in this case. So. If, if if they're pro tanto, why do why do we have to have plausibility in all cases? I, I would I would agree that would sort of wipe it out, even as pro tanto reason if we thought that over a huge range of cases or, or nearly all cases um, that there was no can involved. As long as there's some large class.
0: Well, let, let's say it's not a huge. Let's say it's not a huge range of cases. It's just some i, I don 't know what some means, but there's some not, they 're not eccentric or bizarre cases there 's some sort of class, some more or less natural class of cases in which there just is no form of action open to any outside agent that would uh, that, that had um, any significant probability of bringing about an effective democratic transformation in a society okay so let 's just say it 's some now. so your question is if they are just pro tanto reasons, uh, why should that bother us? And I guess what I'd want to know is just what exactly are they reasons to do? I mean, what I want to say is they're not even pro tanto reasons if there's no action for which they can be reasons. And what, what I've argued is that there's a significant, although we don't know how big, range of cases in which there's nothing. There's nothing that could be done by an outside agent that would make any difference.
2: Well,
0: it's not as if I have a reason to act and something trumps it. I have no action for which there could be a reason. Or do you want to say, I have some reason, but uh, what trumps it is that it wouldn't, I have, there's some action available, but the, the trumping reason is that it wouldn't work.
2: Well, right, because I think that that's that that's often the kind of case,
1: right? We say, God, it'd be great to depose a dictator, but it would just result in chaos anyway, um, and we'd end up killing more people than, uh, than, than maybe would have been, died under the regime anyway, all these other sorts of things. That doesn't. That doesn't invalidate the idea that it would be great to depose this bloodthirsty dictator, right, it's saying, given all these other sorts of considerations, that consideration
0: is overbought? I, I think probably to get, uh, this is a good question, but I think probably to get clear about it, I'd have to talk more and it would have to be more technical about the range of possible worlds in which um, the action wouldn't be available. I mean, if it's, just, if it's just that the dictator's terrible and that society would do great if it had democratic institutions and the only problem is that the only way we have of intervening will involve killing 100,000 of their people and that's too many, um, I mean, that's one kind of case. It would be a different kind of case if the society wouldn't support the institutions if they were created, or if it was, um, uh, you know, because it was fell below some economic threshold, or it didn't have a culture that would support the institutions, or that it had so many ethnic divisions that the effect of the intervention would just be to produce uh, balkanization. I, I, would just, I think I'd have, to, I'd have to do more to distinguish the cases in which... Another way to put this is to distinguish the reasons why, um, why feasible feasible actions are not available. Um, I don't think it would change, I mean, I'm not sure it would change the, so to speak, the practical conclusion. Um, um, I mean, it might produce a sort of a different conception of what a human right is, but I, I mean, what's essential to me is that we maintain the connection between human rights and political action. We, partly because there's, as any, anybody who, who's read any of the sort of philosophical literature about human rights knows, one of the, one of the arguments against human rights that's made by some of the skeptics is that human rights are just some sort of ideal, some alternative language for describing political ideals that don't necessarily bear on political action in the present at all. And I don't think that's how the framers of modern human rights doctrine thought about human rights, and I'm sure it's not how participants in human rights practice think about human rights. And So I think we need a conception of human rights in which that connection with action is maintained. And. So what worries me about the democracy case is that we have a whole range of cases where I don't think there's any eligible action, and I need somehow to get to represent that in my view. But you may have given me a different way of of doing that. Am I making any sense? Okay. Um, I should just call on people. Okay, in the back.
2: Yeah, this may be just a fun for another way of putting uh, my question. I'm how I'm in comparative studies. And I'm not a great fan of human rights, and I like the idea of your insisting that action, but it seems to me there may be two ways of conceiving of action in light of the human right that you can't foresee an immediate intervention, which is to construct institutions that would defend those human rights, like, let's say, making sure a world court works. So that would be taking action on the basis of human rights, uh, even if intervention in this particular case was possible. So, how would you invalidate that second form of action?
0: Well, these these aren't doubts about human rights globally. They're doubts about a human right to democracy. And um, and I I guess I'd want to know more about how a world, a human rights court, what's the relationship between having a human rights court that works and a human right to democracy? Because I I think for the kinds of reasons I've talked about, there will be a class of cases in which that court would have no means at its disposal to influence the... uh, Internal political structure of of, these regimes.
2: What I'm looking for is why why the pressure from human rights doesn't maintain, even if you're brought up short because this case doesn't work out. The the, the World Court Human Rights is just an example of a a search for a mechanism, a kind of meta action, if you will, that would still be fueled by some kind of human rights, but not necessarily work in this case or or necessarily call for that form.
0: well i, I just uh, I, I may not be seeing the whole force of your question, but two just quick comments one I think there 's a lot to be said about the importance of institutions uh, of multilateral institutions that would both create incentives for human rights compliance inside countries and create incentives for um, other actors to act in cases where human rights are violated and i mean it 's the only plausible answer to the worries about uh, the use of human rights as a kind of a tool for hegemony, among other things. Um, I think it's also just the only way to make human rights effective in a wide range of cases. Um, so, I'm, I, mean, I'm, I mean, I, um, I, I, I think the, that kind of connection with institutions at the multilateral level is important. I just don't quite see how it changes the argument about a human right to democracy, unless we could say that creating some sort of multilateral pro-democracy institutions would change the arguments about feasibility or uh, or um, the, or economic preconditions or cultural variation. And I don't see quite how... I don't think there's anything essentially unilateral about the last set of doubts that I have about the availability of uh, effective international action. And, you know, I mean, we already have a kind of weak multilateral democracy regime in the UN... Um, you know, these sort of various parts of the human rights system that are democracy promotion parts, the election monitoring, the uh, democ- dem- democracy advocacy, um, all that stuff, I I think in places, I think there's some cases where those are effective, but I think there's some cases where they won't have any effect at all. And um, and if that's true, then I think we have a problem with the claim that if, if we think human rights are both universal and, and and connect to action, at least in this minimal sense, that there ought to be some some action available to some external agent that in typical cases would have an effect, then I think we have a problem with the human right to democracy. We have a problem in a way that we don't with other human rights that are controversial, like the human right to an adequate standard of living, um, You living, know, where there's a much wider range of action available to outside actors that might affect, um, that might affect the satisfaction of that right inside a society. I mean, this connects to one other observation maybe is worth making, and that's that what makes... The right to democracy different from, I, I won't say most, but from a, a range of other human rights that are in the Declaration and the Treaties is that the, let me use the adequate standard of living as a, as a contrast. The, the, right, the human right to an adequate standard of living describes, describes a feature of outcomes to which state-level institutions are supposed to be committed, and it leaves it open how they bring about those outcomes. Or to put it another way, it identifies a kind of human interest um, which um, institutions are required to give priority to. And then it leaves it open to, in, to the institutions at the domestic level to figure out how to do that best. The right to democratic institutions is different. It specifies a particular institutional solution to a problem. And, um, and, uh, and so it doesn't leave this same sort of Range of, of policy discretion at the at the domestic level, and I think that's where it gets into trouble. It, I mean, it assumes that societies will have the kinds of characteristics that makes the institutional solution work for the underlying problems that it's supposed to be a solution to. And I just don't. I mean, maybe it, maybe democratic institutions are the only solution to these problems. I just think we don't know. And I think if we think that demo, if we think that human rights have to bind to international action, I think we risk a kind of a political hubris and bringing them to bear on policy choices in cases where in fact we don't know what we're doing or what the outcomes of our action are likely to be. So I, I realize this isn't quite a response to your point, but it's, it's what explains why I think this is a special kind of case and maybe not one to generalize from to other human rights. You know, I don't know. I'd, I just don't have a well enough worked out view. because I, I mean, the problem is to get... You know, put this in sort of judicial language. You uh, you, know, you want a right to be justiciable, and I don't know if we could get a statement of the right to collective self-determination that's clear enough to to guide action. But uh, I sort of hope we can, because I, then, uh, if, if we can't, a lot of this is not going to work. Um, but I think that's a task I haven't really thought enough about. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat>
3: Might be supportive of the doubts that you're having. It. And that is that it seems to me that there's a tension in the whole idea that there's a human
2: right to democracy between, you know, on the one hand, human rights <coughs> are uh,
3: non territorial, they attach to people uh, in virtue of their humanity and not in virtue of their citizenship. okay? And on the other hand, democracy, which, at least in your discussion, is implicitly territorial, it's all functioning citizenship, and so on. And so, my question I guess I have two questions. Um, first of all, is there a way to justify Um, territorial democracy or the exclusion of people from your democracy democratically? I think that would be very hard to do with the support that there's an overall tension here. Um, And secondly, why doesn't the right to democracy include democracy at the international or global level, as well as just only the territorial? So I guess what I'm suggesting is that in in your discussion, there seems to be an implicit state-centric frame
0: which might not be called for, given the kind of discourse that we're talking about. Good. well there is an implicit state centric frame um, but the reason it's there is that I think it's there in human rights practice uh, I don't think it's necessarily there, but I think it's sort of there in the practice we observe i think I think it was a I think it was a an essential element in the view of the world held by the framers of human rights doctrine and it was they were not wrong in thinking this that um, the the principal locus of political power in the world existed at the level of states both and that was important in two ways, both because of the potential whoops. Oh, so much for states—both uh, in terms of the potential for change that they represented, and the dangers to individuals that they represented. And so, it was both the regulation of states and the agency of states that human rights uh, standards mainly aimed at, um, mainly aimed at, uh, at uh, mainly applied to. Now, it wouldn't have to be that way, and if the world were to evolve in ways that it might evolve, maybe we would think differently about human rights doctrine. But, but I think that's the way, I just think that's the way it is, and what I want is a theory that bears on an existing visible practice. So, so I feel, I, I think there is a state-centric element in it, and I think it's sort of required by the fact that the, the, the way the world is at the moment, states still have a kind of importance that we might wish they didn't have, but, and may not have, but do. Now, the other thing I'd say is I don't actually, I, I wish I could accept the earlier part of what you said as a sort of friendly contribution, but I don't really think, I think it's wrong to think about human rights. Well, how should I put this? Um, I, think it, I think we can be misled with this conventional phrase that's often applied to human rights, that people can claim them simply in virtue of their own humanity. I know that's a, that's a kind of canonical phrase in human rights discourse, but I don't. I think it's very hard to make sense of of most of the human of a, of a significant number of the human rights that are actually listed in the main, you know, in the in the major documents. If we if we think that they that the considerations that justify them have to be have to be somehow limited by this notion that they they apply to people simply in virtue of their own humanity. I just don't think you get human rights out of that idea. I think you may, may get something like a very minimalist conception of natural rights on a, on certain views. But I don't think you get, I think, it's, I think it's hard to get a right to due process of law or to, um, certainly to democratic institutions, but even to an adequate standard of living or to free primary education. Uh, or to a woman's choice of a marriage partner out of humanity as such. I think, I, think the, I think when you actually think about the arguments you need to make to make the case that we ought to have an international regime that, uh, that justifies sort of you know, political action in the ways that I described, um, in the service of these kinds of values, you end up making arguments that go beyond what you might think of as considerations that pertain to human beings as such. I think human rights have a lot more to do with global justice than is sometimes granted. And I don't think you can get human rights out of considerations of humanity alone. So so I don't, I mean, this is another, another whole discussion, but I think that um, it's related to taking the practice seriously. I think, you know, it's not hard to find philosophers who will produce theories of human rights that try to see them as, as articulations of a sort of fundamental obligation of humanity to other people. Um, but, I, but if you look at the arguments, I think you end up in, in almost every case of people who tried to make these arguments, what they think of as legitimate human rights is a, you know, a fairly constrained, proper subset of the human rights of international doctrine. And I mean, one thing you can conclude from that is that international doctrine is just ludicrously overreaching. But another thing you could conclude is that the philosophers don't understand the practice. And I'm I'm more inclined to think the latter than the former, um, because I think the real challenge for a political theorist is to make sense of a practice that's visible and out there, rather than to argue that it's not in some respect compatible with some element in the history of philosophical thought. I just think that's dogmatism. Not accusing you of it. Um, Yeah. You're asking me to sort of explain this from the point of view of somebody who thinks it is a human right. Uh, well, I, I don't. I, I mean, I think there's more than one point of view of somebody who thinks that it is a human right. So, and I don't know which one to pretend I hold. But um, l- let me just sort of reflect on the question. I think um, what I think one ought to think would be gained if one took human rights seriously in the way one should is that uh, I mean, it's one thing to think that democracy is the best form of government. It's another thing thing to think that we ought to have a a sort of international normative order in which it's widely regarded as acceptable for political agents outside of a society to do things that in the judgment of those agents increases the chances that a society will come to have democratic institutions. Uh, Human rights are matters of international concern. They're not just statements of political or economic or moral ideals. Um, so they have to connect somehow to action. They have to have some legitimating force. It's the I think it's the interference-justifying role of human rights that makes them a distinctive category of political values. And that fact has to constrain our judgments about what counts as human rights. So, you know, you might very well think democracy is the best form of government, but you might also think uh, societies have to satisfy certain kinds of background conditions before it will actually work. You know, you might think that... Uh, Interference, even if it is the best form of government, that interference would be objectionable because that interference would be paternalistic. Uh, you, and, or you, as, along these, <coughs> I'm going to get rid of this thing. Uh, <laughs> or you might think that um, there's just no way of acting that will actually make democratic institutions happen. So those are all ways that you could, one could agree that it's the best form of government but disagree that it's a human right. And they all come out of taking seriously what it is for something to be a human right. Well, I think that's one, I think one, I think one requirement is that in, in, is in the broad range of cases in which the right's likely to be asserted, that there be some, that the assertion of the right provide an agent with a reason to act. And in order to have a reason to act, I claim there needs to be an act that would be, at least in some nearby possible world, likely to bring about the intended outcome. If there isn't the act for which the reason could be a reason, there isn't a reason. And if there isn't a reason to act, then it isn't, Then the human right isn't universal in the way that human rights need to be. So that's what I think follows from the model of human rights that I stipulated and didn't explain. But um, I mean, that's the, if someone accepted that model, I think the answer to your question about democracy as a human right would have to go along those lines. Um, so I think that goes back to the thing I said at the beginning that I think it really is a different, it's a distinct question of political morality whether democracy is a human right. It's distinct from the question of whether it's best or required by justice.
4: Something at the international level, but it's hardly a guarantor of anything. And I'm not sure what it is, but
5: that's
4: the other thing. It seemed like you're talking about human rights, and I this is not my area at all, so I'm, I'm talking ignorant here. But it seems to me, as a person that the laborers, the human rights are something that we value in and of themselves. Whereas when you were talking about democracy, you, you were constantly referring to it in terms of performance indicators. So, and I understand government is part part of government, but whether it performs or not, but there's other things it seems to me about democracy as a human right. For for example, is is authority legitimate? Whether I think it's legitimate, regardless of how it performs. And democracy is a right or a value in and of itself, it may provide dignity. You know, and and, and in my field, international relations, we talk about democracy and say it doesn't cause, you know, democratic states are more peaceful, therefore we should like democracy i am saying, well, even if they were more war prone we might like democracy. Just because we like democracy. It's a value. So okay. Uh
0: well it does it make sense to ask the question why we like it?
4: Why we like it? Because we think that people should have some input to the government that they have, whether it performs better or worse than Mussolini whose you know trains ran on
0: And why do we think they should have some input?
4: We think that this is something that gives people dignity and a sense of, you know, work, that they can actually be part of a collective choice, have some input. To say that you are, I mean, the example, let's say an African-American country. Let's say that I could make the argument hypothetically that that they don't understand our interests, and I wish if, if they didn't vote, the outcome might be better for them. Now, do you think if I put that to them, they'd say, "Yeah, that, that's reasonable." If you could show me that, I won't vote. You take the vote away from me. I think they'd
0: say, "I'd rather vote." Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you are, uh, and I, I mean, as I think it's a perfectly um, l- legitimate and honorable argument for democracy that it has a relationship to to people's sense of dignity. Um, uh, and I didn't. I, I mean, I didn't. There's a, there's a kind of a form of a proceduralist view that sees dignity as a kind of foundational value. Um, but I could have said about that what I said, <coughs> excuse me, about um, the the proceduralist and instrumentalist views that I did mention. And that is that I think the argument. I think if you look at that argument, it's it it's only it's only persuasive because you because there there are some empirical presuppositions in the background about the values held by people in the society to which you think the argument applies. And I don't think it's a universal truth that people feel their dignity insulted when they don't have a vote. I just think it's demonstrably not a universal truth. Um, I mean, it's true in lots of societies that we study, but it's not true every place. (coughs) It wouldn't be true in the Rawlsian decent consultation hierarchy. Um, You know, it wouldn't have been true in lots of societies before about the middle 19th century. Um, I just don't, I mean, I think that's an argument that has (coughs) a certain kind of benign parochialism about it, and I accept it for the range of societies that I'm most interested in, but I don't think it's, uh, if human rights have to be universal, I don't think it's a kind of argument that will get us universality. Well, I I said it was difficult because I wanted to have an explanation of why I wasn't going to say more about (laughs) self-determination. Um, I think it's, uh, but I do think it's difficult. I mean, I think that the, the paper I mentioned by Joshua Cohen, which is called Is There a Human Right, is, I think it's called Is There a Human Right to Democracy, is the paper that contains this sort of three-part formula that's meant to be a kind of minimalist definition of collective self-determination. I think it's a good place to start, but I don't think what's there is nearly clear enough to serve as an element of international human rights law. I think the question is, the question I meant to say was difficult, is um, how you transform this abstract conception, which I think has real content, into something sort of clear enough to serve as a, so to speak, legislated international standard. So and I, in saying it's difficult, I don't mean to say that smart people couldn't figure it out. I just mean I think it's complicated and it takes some more thought than I've given it. But um, I do think it's sort of the way... It, it, I mean, I believe in human rights on the whole, and I, and I think it's important that human rights doctrine contain some standards for political institutions at the domestic level. So I think it's important to work through what you might how you might give some content to this idea of collective self-determination. So I, I do think it's a project worth doing. I just don't know what to say about what the right outcome of it should be.
6: <clears throat>
0: so your thought is that you could do this sort of inductively. Is you you would look around and find find models and then describe these alternative models well, of. <coughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a good way to go, and I I think in, I think that may be what Rawls thought he was doing in describing decent hierarchical societies. Although, I mean, the model he constructs doesn't bear any very clear relation to an existing society, but um, I think that may be what he thought he was doing. But, you know, he did it, he was thinking of a kind of idealized Islamic society, and one ought to be thinking about some idealized other societies, too. I saw some hands here. Yeah. Um, Don here. <laughs> um, I guess I want to go
3: back to Mike's question, So I'm worried about how closely you're tying the existence of human rights to I mean, the existence of some action that will enforce it or make the condition for it possible. Um, it seemed to me that most of the human rights made the ones that would be impossible to in certain kinds of cultures, I mean, the right to freedom um, of to, you know, religion, the right to choose a marital partner, things like that, there could be cultural conditions that would make it impossible to, uh, to realize that right in a given society. Um, that may even be for certain sort of law-like or quasi-law-like reasons. Um, and yet, I guess, at first I was wondering about how you were tying the point of saying that there's a right to there being some African <laughs> says, um, I guess now I'm not so sure that there isn't also a point to saying that there's a right there. I mean, it seems to me that you're thinking that the point has to be that we can fix it or correct it, but there can be other points to saying that someone's got a right so that I can fix it or that there is a, 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 an action in a nearby world that will fix it. Um, one of the points can be to condemn the government that doesn't respect that right. Um, and I, I guess there are a couple questions here. One has to do with uh, what sorts of points we might have in asserting that someone has a right. But another one is uh, wouldn't other human rights that you are generally in favor of turn out to be in jeopardy because we might be able to determine that given certain cultural
2: background uh, conditions, there's nothing you can do? Well, I think,
0: uh, well, there's, there are several questions there, um, uh, and they're good ones. Um, uh, let me let me say two. I think disconnected things. Um, the f- first is that um, when I th- the, the category of rights for which I think this is the most problematic are actually gender related rights. The, I mean the, the the women's conventions an amazing document to read, um, not not just because it exists, which is amazing enough, but. Um, because the kinds of requirements it imposes are so sweeping i mean it, it doesn 't just require governments to change laws and policies it requires governments to take actions to change customs and conventions uh, that are in so- found in society at large and the, and the only other human rights instrument, anything like that is the uh, women the uh, um, uh, um, uh, anti discrimination convention um, but the women 's convention goes farther, and I think you could i mean so there is, and I think in the case of that convention there probably is some kind of argument that says that there may not be anything effective can be effectively done by outsiders. Though I think there's I think there's rebuttals to that claim in the case of the Women's Convention that don't have analogs in the case of the democracy, the right to democracy. Um and the, the rebuttals have to do with the role of civil society organizations as external actors, um and the thought that um you know, what's conventionally called enforcement, but I think wrong, it's a misleading word, the thought that the international action that could be justified might be, broadly speaking, educational um, rather than coercive, um, and can take place, so to speak, in league with local agents rather than sort of in opposition to them. Um, um, Now, these are going to be matters of degree, and, uh, and if we pushed on it, maybe we would think that the Line was so fuzzy that I couldn't really distinguish the democracy case. But my sort of thought is that uh, that's the way I try to respond. Um, but the other point, the other disconnected point, was that um, this your comment and the earlier one make me think that the force of the the force of the argument about um, about uh, the connection with action may actually be parasitic on the earlier two doubts. Because what I want to say in, about these cases is that I don't the the kinds of reason why the kinds of reasons why external action aren't likely to work are connected with these earlier doubts they either have to do with the recalcitrance of the local economic structure to supporting effective democratic institutions or the conflict with widely indigenous widely held political values that would uh, either frustrate or undermine uh, efforts to induce democratic reform. But if those are the kinds of uh, forces that make external action unlikely to succeed, then this last argument is actually unnecessary, and um, and the argument that I'd, I'd have enough to sustain my skepticism if I just thought about the first two. So, I mean, that's that's another line I think that these two comments both uh, both suggest. Sorry to be disconnected. But, um, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah.
7: Justin Darm's philosophy. So. I find this all very interesting and I've learned a lot. Um, uh, I'm trying to think about the relationship between the claims about human rights and, the, and, uh, and ideas that you said you weren't arguing for, like that the democratic uh, uh, way is the ideal goal of political change and a requirement for political justice. And it sometimes felt to me along the way as though arguments you were making were calling. That second thing into question, that you that you assure me that you're not trying to argue for for that. You're only trying to argue for, for a claim about human rights. I think. So so I so let me try thinking about it this way. Suppose I suppose we accept for, for the sake of discussion that um, that democracy is a requirement of political justice. But now we're wondering, in light of that fact, whether or not we should think that there's a human right to democracy. Um, now, uh, some of the things we then think we had reasons to do, if we thought there was a human right to democracy, we would justify by appeal to the thought that it's a requirement of political justice that uh, the political regime to be democratic, and so we have sort of threats, kinds of shaming uh, actions. We 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 might. Know uh, or or have good reason to think that, that that won't work, but there's a point to the action, um, which is uh, which is it's a way of registering our collective understanding that it, this is indeed uh, a requirement of political justice. Moreover, circumstances on the ground change, and at some future time it might be the case that. Um, that a society which now there's nothing we can do to make it democratic can be made democratic. And there's a point to uh, to encoding um, uh, this as a human right to the extent that we think um, let's remind ourselves to keep up some pra- s- some practices that there's a point to keeping up. Like the shaming practices. And, and the, where again, the point is not that they'll succeed now, but that, but that this is what justice requires. One more thought, and then I'll stop. Um, at one point you said, um, look, I, I don't see why we should think that there's a normative order entitling international agents to do things that in the judgment of those agents makes it likely that a democracy will ensue. That seems right. Um, uh, we should be very worried about the judgment of those agents and the considerations that you've adduced should make any such agent about whether or not they've got a reason to do any of the variety of things that one might think one has reason to do when, uh, when there's a human right. But um, but that seems like a separable thought. That is, saying that there's a human right isn't saying um, anybody who thinks they've got a chance at improving things on whatever poor evidence they that they choose to accept as, as adequate uh, should go for it. Right? That's not what one's saying. So. Um, well,
0: I, I sort of th- thought that last thought was going to have a concluding sentence. Oh, yeah. well, okay, sorry, sorry, but, sorry, I guess the,
7: the, the conclusion of that, the that's was, saying, so. that... That's not
0: what one's saying, so... That's not what
7: one's saying, so one shouldn't be worried about um, about the sort of practical significance of, of deciding to say that there's a human right to democracy on the grounds that that will license this sort of behavior. Because, oh. it, because it won't.
0: Because it won't license the
7: behavior. Right, it doesn't license not enough that that in your judgment, it's likely that democracy will ensue. Um, There are general epistemic standards governing how you go about forming those judgments, and we hold you responsible for those, and that's part of, um, of uh, of what we license when we say that there's a human right. We license you to do things subject to certain kinds of epistemic constraints. Your argument has shown us that the epistemic constraints won't license much under certain
6: kinds of conditions. Right, right,
7: right. right. Though, though my argument suggests maybe they'll still license some shaming
0: activities. Right, well, so, I mean, the, the points are connected because it has to be, the, there has to be some point. If, it, if there isn't a point, if there isn't a, if, if, if for these latter kinds of reasons there isn't anything that we can responsibly do that would bring about the change that the right seems to demand, then there's no point in having the right unless... Then, then the practical point in having the right has to be of the kind you described earlier. That is, it states a sort of a, a, a it states a standard of political justice that may um, be a worthy long-term intention, even if there, even if it doesn't bind to any particular kind of action in the present, uh, or it helps to inform the development of values inside a society that might somehow down the road play some causal role in bringing about democratic reform or making institutions. Democratic institutions more stable. You're thinking of.
7: I, I, I think there are all those good consequential thoughts, but I also think there is a point to the action of shaming that doesn't have to be expressed in terms of its consequences.
0: And what's the non consequentialist point of shaming?
7: To express the thought that it's a requirement of political justice that these people are violating. So that's, again, <laughs> on the supposition that it's a requirement of political justice, right? Which, which you could, I mean, which I sometimes think.
0: Right, that was your first point. Um, well, what I was going to say in response to the first point was this. Um, I, did, I don't, as, 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 as I should have said if I didn't say, I don't think these questions are unrelated. They're just not the same. I mean, what, whether there's a human right to democracy might depend in some way on whether or not it's a requirement of political justice. Um, but I don't mean to be addressing that question, although the, some things I said are pertinent to it. Um, I don't, in fact, if saying democracy is a requirement of political justice is saying that um, every society ought to have democratic institutions, and um, if they don't, people who are appropriately, maybe even internal actors who are appropriately situated, ought to take steps to help bring it about that they do, then I don't think democracy is a requirement of political justice. Um, Now then you could say, well, you know, you, you, you underestimate the range of, of uh, feasible actions that are actually open to political agents, and, you know, maybe it, it's just sufficient if we start talking about democracy in the schools and, uh, you know, publishing uh, anti-regime pro-democratic newspapers, because even though the society's existing current economic conditions won't sustain democratic institutions and so on and so forth, someday they will, and we want these ideas to be in the air somehow. Well, maybe that's, maybe I think that's fine, but... Um, but if I say that, then I've, if I say that and I generalize to my model of human rights, then I've made it possible for essentially any good thing to count as a human right, and that seems to me to devalue the currency. And I don't want that to happen to human rights. So I need a model of human rights that's going to set some limits to what count as um, as the kinds of actions that human rights violations can can uh, justify. And so, as I, so, so I said at the beginning, a lot of this, at least. Uh, implicitly is really more about the nature of human rights than it is about democracy. and I, This is yet another way that it is. One wants a conception of human rights that will be more or less responsive to the practice as we observe it and that will be robust enough to enable a kind of response, a response to be made to various kinds of skepticism that are around about the human rights project in general. And one kind of skepticism just says, Human rights is just another way of talking about all good things. And if that's what it is, why should we have human rights? It's just a waste of time. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's the way people who are practitioners think about human rights. I'm certain that's the way that the framers of human rights, it's not the way that the framers of human rights thought about human rights. And I don't think it's the way we should think about human rights because I think they fundamentally are a kind of remarkable achievement since World War II. And what one wants is a kind of a you know, reasonably hard-edged theory that makes sense of them without... Uh, Giving away the game in the way I think I would have to if I accepted just any action as pertinent. So I'm I'm starting to ramble, but I hope this makes some sense. Uh,
2: Okay. Can I take more questions? Take a break. Okay.
0: As you think about it, what's the difference between a right to pursue democracy and a right to democracy? Good, I see. Um, well, I think to, I do think it's essential to the idea of a human. Now, I think this, but it's debatable. I think it's essential to the idea of a human right that it be a matter of international concern. And I interpret the idea of a human right being a matter of international concern as, in terms of the the uh, the uh, it, the role of a human right in justifying international political action. So, to me, what would be important about your idea of a right to pursue democracy? is the capacity of that right to be a basis for a demand for international help. So you're thinking of a group of democratic activists in a non-democratic society who are, you know, part of a movement for political change and who need outside support. Um, And to say that they're exercising a human right then just would be to say that um, outside agents who are, you know, appropriately positioned and have the right kinds of resources have a, a reason to come to their aid. I mean it might maybe the reason will be trumped by other reasons, but they have at least a reason. Um, well, if if that's what a right to pursue democracy means, to me it just is the same as a right to democracy. It's the it's the it's acting on a right to democracy. Um, and right, but it's not subject to your criticism on the basis of unethical economic development and uh, on the sort of cultural chauvinism that might be- well, Those are two different things. I I don't think the fact that there's a movement for democracy is evidence that the society in which the movement happens is above whatever economic threshold a society should be at to be able to have stable democratic institutions. I think those are independent questions. Um, And as I said, I just don't think we know the answer to the question about economic preconditions. I I I think we have aggregate data that's more encouraging than one would have thought 30 years ago, but I still think we don't know enough to know that in any particular case it really would be in the interest of those democratic uh, agitators you're describing to, to succeed. Um, that's not to say we should oppose them. It's just to say that as outsiders who aren't in an epistemic position to make that judgment, I don't think that the simple fact that they demand help is sufficient to generate the requirement to help. I think there's this other question that's not answered, and I, I, and I do think there's a certain kind of responsibility to be to be epistemically modest in what we think we know about how other societies are likely to behave. So those two questions I think are separate. On the cultural question, as I I just briefly said at the end, and there's there's more of this in the written version of my paper, um, I think that divided societies, societies in which there's um, a visible act of indigenous democratic movement, are a different kind of case from societies where there isn't one, where there are traditional institutions of a non-democratic kind and there's no active pro democratic minority, and in those divided case, cases, I think there 's lots of reason to help um, i don 't wh- whether that, whether that explains that there 's a human right to democracy is a further question, but that 's not to say that outside, that outsiders don 't have a good reason to come to the aid of democratic reformers so this is an excuse to say one other thing that I left out that 's in the written paper, so let me just kind of say it because it 's sort of as a general reflection about the idea of a human right. I, as I said before, I like, I like human rights. I would like, to have a, I would like to have a theory of human rights that uh, is adequate to the practice and that is able to respond to skeptics. But in thinking about the idea of a human right to democracy, I think we come up against one kind of limitation of the language of human rights, and the limitation is the following. Uh, hu- human, rights, human rights aspire to be the, the language in which sort of international or global the discourse of global political morality takes place. They're the language in which, the, in, in which we justify international political, or they're a language in which we justify international political action. Now, I think that the idea of a human right that's embedded in international practice makes them not always the best kind of language for justifying international political action. They're supposed to be universal. Well, I, as I've explained, I don't think the right to democracy is universal. But in saying that, I, I'm not committed to thinking that for those people who have a right to democracy that it's, not of, that it's not important and maybe even of overwhelming importance. So I'd like us to be able to say in the kind of case you describe that, out, that certain kinds of outsiders have all kinds of good reasons to, to support the local democratic reform movement. I'd like to be able to say that. I just don't think I can say it in the language of human rights. And I think it's a problem with the language of human rights that it wants to confine international discourse to appeal to norms that can be seen to be in some practical sense universal. I don't think norms have to be that to license political action. Um, So I I mean, I think what there is here is a kind of a, I mean, it's a kind of a flaw in the conception of human rights that I don't think one can get out of without departing from the understanding of human rights that most people sort of in the world today who think about human rights feel committed to. But that's a problem about human rights that I think is, not solvable with a philosophical model. It's just implicit in the practice. Um. Last question. Uh, <clears throat>
5: So, uh, yeah. so, so, perhaps it, it, it seems to me it is possible to say that their right to self-government is respected. But do you accept this assessment? When if you was accept this assessment, there seems to be very big difference between the so right to self-government and right to democracy. So,
0: let, let me just see if I'm clear on the case. So the case is um, it's a political system where women can't vote. Uh, is that the case, you think? But, but they, but, and there's some prevailing ideology that explains why they shouldn't vote. But, you know, the man, male head of, heads of households are able to represent the interests of the whole households. You know, women aren't smart enough to vote. There's some, you know, the role that, that women play in society is incompatible with their being independent political. There's some set of prevailing beliefs that explain why women shouldn't vote. And women accept those beliefs. And so you want to say that that's a case where there's p- the women's right to self-government is being respected, but their right well, to democracy uh, isn't. That, 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 that so do you accept, that, description, or, um, do you accept it? Is that well? But that is the description you're after. Uh, well, that is the right to self. What your notion of a right to self-government is a, would would be satisfied in that kind of society. Yeah. Um, do I accept it? It's a good question. Um, it's a good question because um, it's, I mean, it's analogous to the decent hierarchical society question. Um, I, I think it depends. I think it's, I think, I think it's, I think the the case is under described. And I think if we were to describe it sufficiently, either, either it would be benign or it would be malicious. But either way, we would know what the right answer was. And what's under described is this. In the In the kind of Rawlsian case, the case of collective self-determination, it isn't enough that people, that the society be governed according to a conception of justice that more or less everybody accepts. Um, um, It's also necessary that there be procedures that ensure that everybody's interests be articulated in the public realm. Um, And in the Rawlsian case, that happens through people's group memberships. And it's assumed that um, there are uh, forums in which public officials um, can be held accountable for their decisions in relation to the widely held conception of justice, which, of course, will go way beyond just the views it has about, about gender roles. So I, I think if you take all of that on board, it's very unlikely that the society in which women aren't allowed to vote would satisfy the other conditions. So I think probably it wouldn't be a society in which you could say that women's rights to self-government were actually respected. Um, now, if you change the story and you and you put and you add all of these kinds of other other background assumptions, um, and then you say, well, we're going to stipulate that all this stuff is true, so you know we actually know that women's interests will always be respected and that women really do accept all of this, and they're not accepting it out of some sort of, sort of subtle coercion that's associated with uh, the role that they occupy in society, and so on, you know, then I, think, then I think you'd get a society in which I'd probably say, yes, their right to self-government is being respected, but then I'd say, but it's not, the society couldn't ever exist. It depends on, it depends on our accepting some sort of propositions about the characteristics of human social behavior that are t- demonstrably untrue. So it's a good question, I j- and, uh, and it's not an easy one, but, I, but, I, but I, d- I think it can be distinguished from the case of um, The the case of collective self-determination that I described. Um, But I'd have to think about it more. I mean, the real issue, the real, the question it raises is what you say about, um, what you say about the moral importance of beliefs that people accept because they're prevalent in a culture under conditions in which those beliefs can't be effectively challenged in public and people can't participate in the, as, as sort of individuals in the public, in the public debate. It's, I mean, these kinds of issues, these are the issues that preoccupy Mill and the subjection of women, which I think is maybe the best text on the kind of question you raise. Um, uh, but again, in the description of a decent hierarchical society or of a collectively self-determining society, it's stipulated that there be, a, that there be protections of public political dissent and that everybody be able to participate in it. Um, and if you, if you actually had those conditions in place, then I don't, it's hard to imagine how you could have the, kind of repressive gender, gender-specific society that you describe. But there's more to be said about this.
2: Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. We can, we, what more can be said can be said outside <laughs> just as easily. So I want to thank uh, Chuck Feitz for the great talk. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all.